Let the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. How appropriate! A great service of celebration, magnificent music, a pretty full church, joy in our hearts, smiles on our faces. This is the greatest and most important festival of the Christian year, and it's good to come and worship our living Lord. We've been through the sadness of Holy Week, the grief of Good Friday, and now we rejoice, for Christ is risen. And it's also appropriate that today we end a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. And we do so by reflecting on the closing words of that prayer. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. That's the message of Easter. It's a message of God's love, God's power, God's reign, God's kingdom and God's glory, the living presence of God in our midst. Now these words don't actually appear in the Bible at the end of the Lord's Prayer, but we nearly always use them when we pray it. In Luke, the Lord's Prayer ends with the words, and do not bring us to the time of trial. And in Matthew, he adds, but rescue us from the evil one. Now such an ending would never have been accepted by a Jew in the first century. It would have been quite unthinkable because their prayers always began and ended on a very positive note with an ascription of praise and thanksgiving. They started adoring and praising God and they finished in exactly the same way because all of our prayer is sandwiched between our appreciation of who God is. And knowing this to be the custom, it could well be that Jesus didn't feel the need to add such words of adoration in the prayer when he spoke it. He just assumed that his followers would naturally praise God in their own words. But it was later readers, especially if they didn't come from a Jewish background, who would have needed more guidance. They wouldn't have known that that was the custom. It's not surprising, therefore, that early in the second century, we find the words, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Those early Christians knew that they couldn't end the Lord's Prayer by asking God to lead them not into temptation and deliver them from evil. They needed to move back to praise and adoration so as to focus on the God who alone has the power to deliver, strengthen and equip us and then enable us to face the challenges ahead. So the kingdom, the power and the glory, although not the actual words of Jesus, are the testimony of his followers. They reveal the style of his praying, the truth of his vision, and the reality of the kingdom he preached. And they also point to the reality of the resurrection, which is certainly revealed and reveals the kingdom of God in all its power and might. Now I know that in this increasingly secular and scientific age, Many today 
find it difficult to believe in the resurrection. They refuse to accept that the tomb was empty. It's nothing to do with the evidence. They're just not prepared to entertain the idea. It's not an easy belief. Something had happened to Jesus that had happened to nobody else. And not surprisingly, therefore, some will deny it. So many of us are locked into a worldview that precluded a supernatural, divine intervention of this sort. They're not prepared to entertain the idea and argue that since it couldn't happen, then obviously it didn't. And yet, the New Testament positively trumpets with the heart-bursting realisation that Jesus is not dead. He was, but now he's alive forevermore. Or as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, if Christ had not been raised from the dead, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. For without the resurrection, the whole Christian message would be based on a lie. Many would have died trusting a delusion and the greatest values of life would have had no guarantee. As Michael Ramsey, a former Archbishop of Canterbury, puts it, no resurrection, no Christianity. And he couldn't put it much briefer or more pointedly than that. No resurrection, no Christianity. And the great Bible scholar Dr. C.H. Dodd said, the resurrection was not a belief that grew up within the church. It is the belief around which the church itself grew up and the given upon which its faith was based. The church is the body, the community of the resurrection of those who believe that Christ is alive. Don't forget that the Jews have always been fiercely monotheistic. There is only one God. But Jesus was so unique that from the earliest day, Christians worshipped Jesus as God. Indeed, his resurrection was so special that they changed their Sabbath day to Sunday because that was the day of the resurrection. Then again, it was common in the first century to venerate the, tomb, the tombs of the great. And yet, until Queen Helena, the mother of the Emperor Constantine, discovered it in the third century, there is no evidence whatsoever that the grave of Jesus had ever become a place of pilgrimage. There was no point. Jesus was alive. You don't need to go back to a tomb. Now, if the Jewish leaders had been able to produce a body, then we would never have heard of Jesus or his followers. It was because those early Christians knew Jesus to be alive in their own experience that they were keen to remember what he was like when he walked in Galilee. These truths must not be forgotten. They must be handed on to the next generation. And that is the reason why the Gospels were written in the first place. They were saying, in effect, 
Our faith is a living experience with a living Lord. And now we must write it down so that everybody in all generations will be able to see for themselves and hear for themselves what Jesus was like when he walked in Galilee and when he was crucified in Jerusalem. Without the resurrection, there would be no Gospels, no Christianity, no church. Or as J.S. Whalian, a great theologian of a former generation, wrote, the Gospels do not explain the resurrection. It's the other way round. The resurrection explains the Gospels. Belief in the resurrection is not an appendage to the Christian faith. It is the Christian faith. So, the early Christians then began with the experience of the risen Christ. The disciples were surprised by it. They weren't ready for it. They didn't expect it. It was only when they looked back later from the experience of knowing that Jesus was alive that they remembered the words that Jesus had told them when he said that he would be raised on the third day. And then the truth dawned, and it all fitted into place. This is what we're experiencing. It's exactly what the Master shared would happen, and now it has. Well, Jesus had died accused of being a traitor. The known accomplices of such people were themselves at risk. No wonder, therefore, that the disciples were broken, disillusioned and despairing on that first Good Friday. The bottom had dropped out of their world. But these timid, frightened men were transformed into a great missionary force. They had such courage that even the risk of imprisonment and martyrdom did not stop them proclaiming the message. People do not die for their inventions. They are only willing to die for their convictions. And these disciples were so convinced of the reality of that resurrection that their timidity went and by the power of the Spirit they were enabled to share the good news to those who would listen. They knew the gospel was true because Jesus had been raised. Not only were they convinced of the relevance of their message, they were seeing lives being constantly transformed as the truth dawned in people's hearts. They knew that the power of the Holy Spirit not only enabled them to proclaim that gospel, but made it come alive in the hearts and minds of their hearers. Professor Tom Wright writes, For the first Christians, the resurrection meant they and others had to go on taking Jesus seriously. Without it, Jesus remains a total enigma, a wonderful teacher, a great leader, a wise man of prayer, but ultimately a noble failure. But with the resurrection, he stands at the great turning point of history and beckons. And beckon, he still does. He still confronts and challenges us 
as he did his first disciples. He still demands response from us as he did from them. And he calls us to follow him, to live in a vital relationship with him, to take his teaching seriously and put it into practice. For in so doing, we find the life abundant. Well, we say thine is the kingdom, and we think of Jesus as king of kings and lord of lords, the only trouble was that in the first century a king was much more powerful than a constitutional monarch is in Britain today. The queen has all the ceremonial and all the glory of being in charge, but we know who's the boss when you listen even to Prime Minister's question time, which makes you wonder if that's wise. You see, we want the glory, and sometimes we, we believe that Jesus is a kind of constitutional monarch. We'll give him the ceremonial, we'll give him the glory and all the right words, but we don't want him to have real power in our lives. We want to be the boss in our lives, and we're not sure that we want anybody else to tell us how we should live. We want to make the important decisions. We want to be in charge of our own destiny. So we pay lip service to the Lordship of Christ, and conveniently forget that Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow him. In other words, he calls us to be committed. So when we pray, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, we are in effect saying that we want God's kingdom to come. We want his will to be done. And furthermore, that we're willing to let that rule begin in us, in our own lives. We're acknowledging his lordship and committing ourselves to live for him. Well, their marriage was going through a difficult time and she complained to her husband about his insensitivity. And in response he said, but darling, you know I love you, I really do. And the wife looked at the husband and said with deep feeling, well, don't just say it, live it. <laughs> and I think we can understand that. It's got to be more than words. And to pray, pray the Lord's Prayer is to commit ourselves to the values of the kingdom. We're taking the medicine ourselves so that we can be strong enough to share it with others. And we're signing up to live our discipleship to play our part in sharing the vision, in furthering the purposes of the Master. The great composer Puccini wrote some tremendous operas, Madame Butterfly, La Boheme, Tosca. In 1922, he was diagnosed as having cancer, but he wanted to write another opera, opera Turandot. But what if you die? asked his students. Then he said, my disciples will finish it. In 1924, he did actually die. And the disciples did finish the opera. The premiere was at La Scala, the great opera house in Milan. And it was conducted 
by his best student, Toscanini. It came to the point in that opera where Puccini had laid down his pen. With tears streaming down his face, the conductor put down his baton and faced the audience. Thus far the master wrote, he said, and then the master died. Then he picked up his baton, turned and smiled, saying, but his disciples finished the music. Jesus lives. He beckons. And the challenge of Easter is, will we carry on doing the Master's will? Will we play our part in finishing the music? Amen. Loving Lord, Forgive us that so often we pay lip service to you, but don't live our lives to your glory. As we celebrate the resurrection this day, help us to have a deeper understanding of your truth and a deeper and fuller commitment to the teaching that you give us, so that in a growing relationship with you, we may be transformed into the people you long that we should become as we live our lives to your glory. Amen.